This is Deck Support, the podcast about all the stuff you don't know you don't know when you're building a startup. I'm Rich Kershaw, and I've been a tech founder, consultant, investor, and CTO for over 20 years. And I'm Amy Lilecki. I'm an educator, startup specialist, and process consultant working in the London startup scene. This time on Deck Support, we're taking on pitching. Your company, your product, and you. How do you figure out how to present to investors and customers? How do you walk the line between selling yourself versus selling your product? And what do investors look for in a great pitch? So I guess the first thing we want to probably start with is what exactly is a pitch? Your pitch is the way that you present your product to your target market or your investors or really anybody that you're trying to convince it's a good idea and they should get involved. For example, if you don't know how to pitch your idea in a way that will engage investors, they're going to be very worried about whether or not you have it in you to pitch your company in a way that's going to engage customers. It's also a process of self-awareness, self-belief and confidence building that applies to both fundraising and sales. You might tweak it, but I think it is ultimately the same job. And so at what point should you be developing your pitch deck? Because I would imagine that is kind of a point where you start to realize what it is that you're missing in your company. So is it something that you should be doing on day one? Or is it something that you should be doing after a certain magical moment in the startup process? I think the answer is you should have your pitch in its most abstract form. Um, All of the essentials about your business and your product and you as founders readily adaptable for various different situations that you might need it for. Just in case you see an executive getting into an elevator. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and I have to say, some of the some of the elevator pitches that I've heard, I mean, God knows how high the buildings are that these people are travelling <laughs> in, because my understanding of an elevator pitch has clearly changed a lot. I always assumed it meant a captive audience. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good way of thinking about it, actually. If you have some poor soul sitting in front of you and they can't get out without being rude, how do you make sure that they don't immediately regret being trapped in this room with you? Make people happy that they're there. <laughs> So just because you've got a great idea does not mean that you are a good presenter, that you are good at making this kind of sales pitch. There's a reason why big companies don't just send out their developers to sell the product because it's not just knowledge about the product. So what do you do do if you're left with trying to pitch your product, but you're not a salesperson? So to a certain extent, the, the process of becoming a founder with a capital F is that process of figuring out how to present yourself. We'll be talking to some people who've been through that journey. And one of the things which we kept on coming back to again and again is that all of those people found that their process of evolving into a competent founder and feeling like they kind of own the territory was actually starting to think of themselves as someone who can be a bit more of a generalist, who thinks of things at a higher level, and who have figured out how to get the passion. Because there's going to be something you're passionate about. And if you're not passionate about it, then you probably shouldn't be starting a startup because it is going to consume a big chunk of your life for a very significant portion of time. There is going to be a way that you can find to harness that enthusiasm. You just need to figure out what the hook is for you and then sell that in the room. And I think that's the essence of what a pitch is about. You don't need to be excellent at pitching. You need to be excellent at your pitch. Should you be adjusting your pitch deck much like you would when you're putting together a resume to say, without lying, I, I'm going to highlight these particular skills to you. So if you're going to an investment house that is helping a specific demographic, then you might put that at the forefront of your pitch deck. If they're looking for environmental, then you're going to highlight that. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I don't think people should get too hung up on how slick their presentation looks. I mean, try to avoid clip art. If you're going to use stock imagery, please make sure that you've purchased it. You know, the basic stuff. But it doesn't need to look like it's the work of a professional marketing agency because you are early stage. You'll be presenting to people who expect to see people with bare bones ideas. And that's okay. In fact, you'll hear some people in this episode say that they're not even really that bothered about how long your pitch deck is because the pitch is partly the deck, but it's also mostly you. How important is the actual deck then? Is it the documentation to peruse at your convenience? And now let me tell you why we're awesome. So it's the teaser. It's the thing that opens the door. When they have a pile of 400 presentations, it's the thing that gets you into the pile of 80. So yours should be printed on cardstock is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> little, little spritz of perfume on your pitch deck. So what you want to do is print it on thick enough cardstock that your presentation is the entire top three centimeters. <laughs> yeah, I guess what you really want to avoid in this, I mean, this is one of my bugbears, to avoid magical thinking. I think unless you're enormously lucky, you will get rejected. Most places do not get funding on their first go. So be prepared for that. If you cannot cope with rejection, choose a co-founder who can handle the rejection and let them go do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the act of presenting can be really nerve wracking. Something that you had no trouble saying a few moments before can cause you to um and awe and get nervous and break into sweats. And frankly, if they're the kinds of people who like to keep you on your toes, then you might really want to consider having a long-term relationship with them. So let's start with how you figure out your pitch and why it's good to do it early. Having built a few companies from the ground up, it became pretty obvious to me that it's hard to figure out which direction you're traveling in unless you know who you're selling to, and that counts for funding or your product. We spoke to Craig Willis, CTO of workflow process platform SCORE, about when his team realized they needed to figure out their pitch. We realized quite early on that actually it would make an awful lot of sense whether we were going to raise money or not to actually sit down and think about how we would be pitching the company. It helps not just with the journey of trying to raise money, but actually even how we present ourselves to our clients, as well as simply what does the product do. It's not an easy thing to do because we felt like we had a vision for where we wanted to take the company, but we realized there were a lot of gaps in how we were planning the business. A lot of it was sort of happening organically. So it really forced us to think about those sorts of things. So our kind of first attempt at a pitch deck was probably quite poor, but it highlighted a bunch of gaps that we've then said, actually, we need to fill that gap before we would come across as credible or, or interesting for a potential investor. So if everyone needs to figure out their pitch in order to convey their credibility, where do you start? Hi, my name is David. I'm the founder of LaunchMappers, an on-demand growth team for startups. We spoke to David Odier about the hook his team uses to start building that pitch. It's really something we're trying to create for each of the company we work with. So nailing down product positioning together with the customer. You come up with messaging that you can pitch to prospective clients. You have to prove that, you know, um, there's a need for your product, that people will be hooked with it. And so, you know, this really is the first step to me when we start working with the company. And do you think there's a big difference in this process for investment versus sales pitching? You want to pitch investors in roughly the same way you're, you're pitching potential customers. That's a really key point. If you can't deliver a succinct product pitch to your investors, then they're not going to believe that you can deliver a succinct product pitch to your customers. And being succinct usually means being confident, and being confident means getting comfortable with owning your area of expertise. And that's no easy thing. 
A lot of first-time founders find that it's a huge change to go from being a subject matter expert to an everything expert, and not everyone you need to get on board as a customer, partner, or investor will be aware that you're on this journey. I'm very comfortable performing and standing up in front of people and delivering a presentation, for example. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO of Skiller Whale. We do targeted capability training for technical teams, and we also host a podcast called Primarily Context-Based. So what was the biggest challenge that you had when you first started pitching to customers and investors? What I've discovered is that I'm very different when I'm not going through a presentation. What I'm bad at is putting on passion. If I describe the idea to you right now, the way I see it, I think I will be much more compelling because I feel really strongly about it. I've got a lot of thoughts about it. I'm really up for a discussion about it. If I'm kind of going through a pitch deck, I'm very bad at communicating the passion. I can communicate the deck fine, but better speakers than me will communicate it with the same fire that I have away from the deck. And in fact, I remember a meeting with one venture capital firm that focuses a lot on product-based companies. But I went in there with my pitch deck and they said, look, you're a technical person. Technical people are horrible at presenting. So put your pitch deck away and just tell it to us without the deck. I'd moderate that a little by saying that it's good practice to make sure you can deliver your enthusiastic elevator pitch without a deck and then introducing slides to support it when you're comfortable working without them. The key is becoming comfortable with the idea that in the early days, anyone who's buying or investing in your product or company will really be buying into you and your co-founders. Focus on being confident with your own skills and back them up visibly by making sure that investors or clients can see that you're confident hiring people to fill in gaps in your own expertise. That's something we'll talk about more in future episodes when we cover building your team. Sarah Stevens, the CTO of Restless, says that it took a while for her to get comfortable with that, owning her own expertise and not having to know everything. I think it's interesting from the terms of the split between covering the business side and then the technical side and where my role sits and not feeling like I have to talk to all the business elements. I'm not saying a great deal in some of these pitches because I'm there as the technical expertise and I can dip into parts of the product. But that has taken me a bit of time to get comfortable with. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that it took a bit of time just to figure out that sometimes you just have to get out of your own way. And it took me a, a bit of a journey to get here. So I have felt because I'm a co-founder in this um, business, I need to deliver on all aspects of the business and know every part of it. But actually, that's not the case. If you are trying to put yourself across as the business person, if you're not delivering on that side, suddenly it comes under question, oh, actually, do I have an issue in that space? When really when they need to be talking to you about the technical stuff. And I have no issues with that because you're totally owning it. And I'm, honestly, even just over the last year, that's become where I've started to become more comfortable with that. Entirely. You don't have to be the person who knows everything about everything. If you're quite ambitious and quite passionate and like want to do everything, that's a difficult place to sit in. David Odier agrees that this is important, and getting comfortable with owning your skills and leaning on your team is essential. He gave us the example of one of his clients who raised funding recently with exactly that approach. I think it's very much okay for someone to say, 
I don't know anything about marketing and I'm going to work with someone that does. I don't know anything about tech and I'm going to work with someone that does. That's exactly what they did. Early on, uh, they knew nothing about technology. It's quite a complex fintech marketplace. They had a budget. They just went with a software development agency specialized on creating marketplaces for fintech. Uh, it was basically just edging his risk and making sure that he was going to get a good product in return. It really comes down to you as a founder finding the, the, the hybrid pace between hands-on and surrounding yourself with the right people. No one can be uh, a great CPO and a great CTO and a great CMO. I mean, there are very, very, very few people in this world who can do this. Just, you know, focus on yourself. And if you aren't comfortable with saying, I don't know that, but I can find out, it can also be quite tempting to spin that discomfort into avoidance or over-promising. Craig Willis, co-founder of process workflow company Score, advises against that instinct. When you're talking to the investor, you're exposing a lot more of what's happening under the bonnet of the company, some of which you might be outwardly presenting maybe a bit more positive, or you think it's not as positive as perhaps it should be. So there's this kind of tendency to be a little bit vague when answering certain questions, but of course that's not always healthy. Yeah, in the last episode on co-founders, one of our guests was saying that with the key people involved in your business, it can be quite tempting to filter the conversations in the early stages, and that can be troublesome. It it feels like that extends out to customer and investor relationships as well as co-founders. Sometimes it's just better to get that stuff out on the table. Those are that uncomfortable conversations, get them out the way as early as possible. So we've heard from a variety of guests emphasizing the need to be yourself, to own your parts of the business, to delegate where necessary. But if you're starting from first principles, what should go in your pitch deck? Kirill Kreschanowski leads partnerships at pan-European growth VC, Maven. The pitch deck is about the first impression and getting the overall vibe of what the company is all about, what kind of problem they're solving, what their product is, what kind of team do they have in place. So it has to clearly state and define those things. But I would say it's nothing more than that. It should be a short and clear document that provides an investor like a quick overview of those things. We see lots of decks that are like 30 pages. And even if you try to read it, sometimes it's hard to grasp what, what this is all about. And Kirill is far from being the only VC who views this as the role of the pitch deck. So for me, it has to give me enough information that I get excited and to be honest, 90% of that is around the vision, the team, what they're building. You'd be amazed at the amount of decks I receive where there's no information on the founding team. I'm Claire Cherry. I lead the early stage investment fund at True, which is a consumer and retail tech focused venture fund out of London. I've been at True five years now, and almost a decade in venture investing. And despite the amount of work that people put into their pitch decks, this is a fairly widely shared view. If I have a few minutes to make a decision about this, then ultimately the fact that it's not in there is more of a red flag than anything else. So it's more about quickly establishing credibility around the founders then? Yes, there's a level about which people expect pretty pictures and you know a good story, but realistically it comes down to can you get people to buy into a vision? And to be honest for us, once we've got through that initial meeting, the pitch deck kind of falls into insignificance realistically. From there, we don't care what form content comes to us, you know, we're happy to dive into the details. That's really interesting, and it's not at all what you'd hear many business coaches or YouTube pitch advice videos telling you. 
What form does the pitch take after you've reviewed the pitch deck then and they're actually sitting in front of you? It's much more about exposure to the team. In some respects, we spend much more time with individuals and founding teams trying to get to that level of, of understanding and comfort. So for your team then, it sounds like the pitch deck really is important as the door opener, but then it's about the face-to-face and how the founders come across, and that's the other important bit of their pitch. So yeah, it has to serve that purpose early on because rarely will you get to a place where you can only rely on introductions and not necessarily have to fall back on a pitch deck. But certainly for us, it's not something that should roll beyond 15, 17 pages. A natural part of the pitch process is that you absolutely will be turned down by clients, investors, partners. And if you're new to this process, then that can sting. One way to get used to it is to remember that this rejection isn't an objective criticism. It's an indication that it's not the right fit and you've saved yourself from a potentially frustrating and distracting relationship. We asked Craig Willis about his experiences of getting used to that. So Craig, how long did it take you to reframe rejection as a lack of fit rather than just out and out critique? Because there's definitely a mental transition point where you're pitching something that's so personal that's not there when you're just working for an employer? It it wasn't something we dwelled on too long. We've got advisors in the business who have experience in this sort of thing. One of them in particular was very quick to highlight exactly what you just said. There's lots of investors out there. They've all got their own idea about what type of company and team that they want to invest in, and they're all different. A lot of this is just about finding the right person with the right fit. As a colleague says, if you you kiss enough frogs, you're going to find your princess or prince. David Horton is a senior associate at Cedars and helps companies raise money through crowdfunding. He also has some insight on how to tailor your pitch to the people that you're pitching to, in this case investors, but it really does apply to everybody. The single piece of advice, I think, is to do your research on the individual investor. As much as an investor is going to do due diligence on you as a business, you should also be doing due diligence on any investor you speak to, any investor that you advance with. Ask to speak to their portfolio companies and whoever they refer you to, also reach out to people yourself. The takeaway here is that a pitch is about getting your foot in the door. There are many incorrect ways you can put one together, but there isn't any one single way that'll work for everyone. And it should be authentic. It should reflect you as much as your product because investors are looking to invest in co-founders as much as in good ideas. And remember, It's all about finding the one. So sometimes when you kiss a frog, all you get is wet lips. A huge thank you to all the guests we had on this episode of Deck Support. To find out more about everybody who contributed to this episode, check out the episode description on your podcast player of choice. We'd also like to thank you for listening. You can also subscribe to Deck Support on your podcast player of choice to make sure that you get alerted whenever we release new episodes. And don't forget to like it if you liked it. This has been Deck Support, the podcast about everything you don't know you don't know about getting a tech startup off the ground. Deck Support is produced by us, Rich Kershaw and Amy Lilecki. We'd love to hear from you about your co-founder experiences, upcoming episode subjects including fundraising, figuring out who to hire first, team culture, or anything else you think we should be talking about to help startups succeed faster. If you want to share what you've learned, have any comments, or just want to tell us something awesome we should cover in a future episode, you can find us on LinkedIn or at our website, decksupport.net. And you can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as wherever you find podcasts.